Hi, everyone. I'm comedian, noted killjoy, and pseudo-public intellectual Hari Kondabolu. Thanks to everyone joining us today from all over the world, from Barcelona, from Baltimore, from Tunisia, India, Australia, the UK. I made those three up, but probably there too. Tonight was originally scheduled to be part two of a conversation about how to beat coronavirus capitalism. Coronavirus capitalism. However, after recent events, it will now be entitled After Bernie Amidst Pandemic. Now, before I kick off the discussion, I want to thank our co-sponsors, Haymarket Books, The Leap, Debt Collective, and DSA. We need bold, radical ideas right now, and it is critical we support these organizations. And you can do so in a couple of ways. First, buy books at Haymarket. Buy them online. Second, if you are in a position to make a donation, no matter how small via Venmo, our four sponsors will share those proceeds equally between them. There will be a card on screen about how to do this and folks posting info in the chat, uh, folks will be posting info in the chat as well. This video will be recorded and shared afterwards on the Haymarket Books YouTube channel. Please subscribe to this channel, like this video now, and share it with as many people as possible. And please consider following all these groups on their social media channels and sign up for their excellent newsletters. Haymarket will be hosting two more teach-ins that I encourage everyone to join. Ruth Wilson Gilmore will be speaking with Naomi Murakawa Thursday, April 16th at 5 p.m. Eastern. Arundhati Roy will be speaking with Imani Perry Thursday, April 23rd at noon Eastern. You can register for both events right now in Eventbrite. And please stay tuned to the end of our event. Arundhati Roy has recorded a beautiful two-minute video we will be playing right at the end. A just a little bit more housekeeping, and then we'll get started. Uh, please post your questions on the live video feed wherever you're watching it. If that's on ha the Haymarket YouTube, comment on the screen on Twitter, post a reaction directly to the video. We're going to be rounding up the questions, and we'll be asking some of them later, the questions that you're asking us. We appreciate your patience, especially with so many people joining this call. We might need your forbearance if we have any technical issues. We might also, you might want to reduce the image quality if you're having bandwidth issues during the call. All right, now let's get started. This is an extremely intense time. So many of us, so many of us have experienced loss or know someone who has. This pandemic has made Bernie Sanders' agenda for universal health care and building a stronger public infrastructure even more relevant and powerful. But now that Bernie has suspended his campaign for president of the United States, where do those of us who want a more just world go from here? Our first speaker is Kianga Yamada-Taylor, the author of From Hashtag Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation. Her most recent book is Race for Profit, How Banks and Real Estate Industry Undermined Black Homeownership. Thanks, Kianga. Welcome. Thanks, Hari. Glad to be back uh, with all of you uh, again to um, talk about the most important issues of the day. So I don't want to prolong this. Uh, there's a couple of thoughts that I have um, about uh, the significance and the importance of the Sanders campaign, um, and then uh, a segue into um, uh, the how that, for me at least, relates to the ongoing crisis 
um, of the pandemic and what we have learned uh, over the course of the last several days is that uh, this is in many ways also uh, a black plague, um, a, a disease that uh, is ravaging um, through African-American uh, communities in, uh, in, in ways that um, are tragic, disgusting, unimaginable, uh, and that really have to become the focus of uh, a lot of our organizing. Um, I wanted to say three things about uh, what I think was um, most significant uh, about Sanders' campaign for me. Um, I think one of the, the, the first things, and I, I thought about this when I, I wrote about this last um, spring and summer, um, <clears throat> I can't remember when, but you know, I thought that the way that Sanders uh, was able to um, explain why there was so much inequality in the United States uh, without resorting um, to the typical kind of blame of immigrants, blame of black people, blame of people on the bottom, um, but how he helped to give ordinary people uh, the, the language to talk about uh, the rich and exploitation um, and the system of capitalism uh, as being uh, responsible uh, for the vast amount of uh, inequality and injustice um, in, in our society. And I think that was really uh, important and powerful because I think part of uh, what Trump was able to do in 2016 was to tap into um, the anger and frustration of some. For others, it was just straight racism. But for some people, uh, anger and, and frustration and resentment about the inability to get ahead. Um, and he was able to twist that into uh, blaming Mexican immigrants uh, or blaming Muslim terrorists uh, or blaming black criminals. Um, and that, you know, is, is a, a staple of American politics, is uh, providing the, the language of kicking down instead of kicking up. Um, and so Bernie, uh, I thought for a mainstream political figure uh, running in the, you know, the Democratic Party um, to actually uh, be able to um, articulate uh, that this is, these are systems uh, at work, and we need to know what they are, and we need to name what they are, um, and we actually need to organize around uh, uh, not changing individual people's um, behavior, uh, changing the, the the system within which uh, these, uh, uh, these 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 problems uh, express themselves. Um, and so, I thought that that was uh, incredibly um, important. The the second thing I would take note of. Um, is his actual political agenda and, and platform. Um, I wrote an article last week, uh, it was last week, uh, that was titled, uh, for New Yorker, that was titled, Reality Endorsed um, Bernie Sanders. And really was trying to back up from when you adore the best of Sanders for um, being realistic. That had no impact through Congress. Um, and you know, 2017, early in running, um, Hillary Clinton accused 
Bernie Sanders just wants to give away free stuff. Um, and so I think that what we have seen is the tendency of the beginning to take hold um, across the country is that the largeness of the Sanders um, program is absolutely what was necessary. Uh, what we have come to see is that the public infrastructure of our society, the civic infrastructure, is completely broken. Um, and it's meant uh, it, it has been tragic consequences um, as a result. Uh, and so there are the, 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 there's the tragedy of the, the pandemic itself and the amount of uh, death that it is uh, uh, wreaking across the country. Um, but then there is the, the economic aspect of this as well, where people uh, cannot go to work, where their places of employment have been mandated by the state to be closed, uh, where we ourselves, you know, I think all but nine states in the United States, mandates uh, require people uh, to stay home. And there is absolutely no infrastructure to be able uh, to help people accommodate that, to help people deal with that. Instead, what we've been told is that sometime between now and September, we may or may not receive a $1,200 check from the federal government. And so in this context, we can see why universal health care is not a pipe dream, and it's not too expensive, but it's absolutely what's necessary. We can see why canceling trillion dollars worth of student loan debt is absolutely necessary. Um, and so I think that thinking big, not beginning with what is possible, but what it is that we need, um, is something that uh, uh, Sanders was able to introduce into the political uh, discussion that has helped to raise the expectations uh, of people in terms of what it is that we need what it is that we deserve and what it is that we should be um, fighting for. And so the last thing in terms of, uh, you know, just thinking uh, off the top of my head why um, the Sanders uh, campaign was so important um, to me, the last thing is this issue of, of solidarity um, and the, the slogan of um, not me, us. And I think that so much in uh, politics in this country is about uh, habituating the public to wait for the political savior, the person who is going to swoop in um, and fix our problems uh, on behalf of us. Um, and Sanders really rejected this formulation um, and instead uh, understood quite clearly that um, whether he could be elected tomorrow, but that if there was not uh, a movement on the ground uh, to actually force recalcitrant Congress of Democrats and Republicans uh, who are either reluctant or hostile to do anything that is outside of the kind of normative paradigm of American politics, that you would need a movement on the ground to force an agenda uh, a discussion of agenda and an enactment of an agenda that was beneficial to the majority uh, of people. This is really what the political revolution that uh, Bernie Sanders talked about um, was. And, you know, I think that that is important. Also, this, this idea of uh, um, at the core of that solidarity, that you don't actually need to be personally impacted 
by something in order to fight for someone else. Um, and and that, that, that's important because that's actually how you knit together a mass movement, not just a movement of people who are directly affected. And those movements can be incredibly powerful and important. But when you get other people to fight alongside of, not on behalf uh, of other people who are experiencing oppression and exploitation, that's when we can build a mass movement that actually has the capacity and the power uh, to transform the conditions um, that we are living in. And I think now we can see why that is so absolutely uh, uh, necessary. The numbers alone of people who are dying um, in this uh, uh, pandemic in, in the United States, this is happening all over the world, um, but in the, in the United States uh, uh, as well, as we are learning over the course uh, of the week, the numbers alone uh, are tragic enough. Uh, we are talking about thousands of people, uh, more than 10,000 people um, in this country uh, who have died in just a matter uh, of weeks. But when we look at the numbers within the numbers, uh, we can see the bitter harvest of American racism coming to fruition. Um, we are talking about in a state of Louisiana where black people make up 32% of the population. They are 70% of the dead. Um, in Chicago, African-Americans are 30, 29, 30% of the population, 72% uh, of the dead. Um, and we don't even have all of the, the, the numbers yet. Uh, for whatever reason, the Center for Disease Control has not uh, uh, produced uh, the full extent of the racial data uh, within this uh, pandemic, but we know that when they will, uh, that the numbers will be um, similar. And so this is, this is the, the, the context within which uh, we have to continue um, the, the struggle for the issues that were brilliantly articulated through the Sanders uh, campaign, um, which is really trying to rebuild a society uh, for human, based on human need um, and not on profit and the enrichment uh, of the few. And so those are, those are some of my initial thoughts and I look forward um, to speaking uh, alongside the rest of you um, tonight. Oh, let me switch. Thanks, Kianga. Our next speaker is Naomi Klein. Naomi Klein is, she's Naomi Klein. I mean, come on. Author of seven books, published in more than 30 languages, including No Logo, The Shock Doctrine, No Is Not Enough. She's also the senior correspondent for The Intercept and is co-founder of the climate justice organization, The Leap. Please welcome author and godhead, Naomi Klein. <laughs> oh, um, Harry, thank you so much. Um, thank you for, for joining us. It's so, so wonderful to be, to be um, back in the circle uh, and back in conversation with some of my favorite people in the world. Um, this, you know, this is a really, really difficult time. And, and in, in the midst of this unprecedented crisis, um, hold, hold, oh, hold on one second. Oh, like, they, they want to say hi again. Back by popular demand. All right, here they are. The dog and the boy want to say hi. All right. 
right. I remember you didn't warn me that you did this webinar. Okay, okay. Why didn't you warn me? So Toma was one of one of Bernie Sanders' surrogates. He came with me to Texas. Uh, he was a videographer for that. Um, so we we had a seder last night by Zoom. Are you gonna say? Okay. We had a, a Zoom Seder, as uh, as many people of my faith did last night, and I know um, many people are having Zoom Seders again tonight. Um, I was actually surprised by how well our video Seder went. Um, I was skeptical about the video Seder um, because we've all been spending so much time on video calls. But it, in a weird way, it actually allowed for a kind of a deeper conversation than is usually possible when our family gets together in physical space, uh, which is usually uh, ends up being really chaotic. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with the Jewish tradition of, of the Seder for, for the for, for Passover, um, it's it's it, you know it, it, there's a lot of plagues in it for starters, so that felt very real. Um, and it's also an interesting um, ceremony because it gives children a space to interrogate adults to 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 try to understand this holiday and and so um, the the young people who are part of our family asked questions about the, the the rituals and we didn't follow the traditional four questions we let them actually ask their honest questions um, so Toma back there had a question about the difference between HIV and AIDS and the coronavirus, for instance, um, because he knew that that's something that his grandfather had worked on um, for many, many years. Um, and there was also a question about why why the Jews had to wander for 40 years in the desert um, before reaching the promised land. Um, and, and we talked about that one for a long time, and we talked about it in the context of the Sanders campaign. Now, I am, I am resistant to the Bernie as Moses um, analogies, uh, you know, in part because, um, as Kianga said, um, you know, we 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 have to resist these great men theories of history. Uh, I I uh, deeply deeply appreciate Senator Sanders and his contribution. Um, I I love the man. I deeply appreciate the man, um, but I don't believe that our liberation is delivered by great men. Um, I believe we earn it from below and that what was so special about this campaign was the way Bernie resisted the cult of personality and and, and created this really, really generous um, movement space um, and helped us find each other, helped us realize how many we, we were. Um, and as we sort of metabolize this loss, we all have critiques about the the people, the, the more who could have been, um, and 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 the fact that the campaign never resonated enough or reached out in the right ways to older African American voters or many older voters, period, or enough women voters. Um, uh, it resonated with an incredibly diverse coalition. Um, that was under the age of 40. Um, uh, but, you know, we had lots of debate inside the campaign about how to reach the people we weren't reaching because we knew we, we because we knew as big as we, we could be bigger, right? Um, and, and that's an interesting problem to have for the left, right? Because for a whole lot of my life, 
I believed that what I had told was true, which was that um, left-wing ideas were, were helping a small minority of people, and that we were a a a a, a, a marginal group that could only hope to maybe move the center. Not that we could ever occupy that center. Not that we had that right and that power and those numbers. So I mean, I will forever be in Bernie's debt um, for for being that connector. And 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 so now here we are in this situation where without Bernie, in fact, we are more divided. And we have to figure out, not Bernie, us, how to build the biggest coalition that is the winning coalition that eluded the Sanders campaign, or we wouldn't be having the conversation that we're having, but that we know is out there to build. But the reason why I'm talking about Passover and wandering for 40 years in the desert is that I do, you know, I never do that. Don't laugh at me, Toma. <laughs> Barney's wife is gonna be Biden's vice president. All right, now Thomas trying to run Jane Sanders as Joe Biden's, you know, vice president. Get this boy out of here. We can't have these types of ideas. All right. Oh yeah, he's trying. He's trying to get that trending. All right, um, and we love Jane Sanders as well. So Jane, I hope you heard that. <laughs> he has very strong opinions about this race. Um, so, so we talked about the 40 years thing, okay, and, and, and there are a lot of different, you know, theories about why, why, why we had to wander for 40 years, and one of the theories is that the people who had, um, people needed to, to, to recover from the trauma of slavery before they could be free, um, and, and and I think that, that there is something really, really sharp around the generational divide that is going on right now in the country. I think that is the sharpest divide, really. Um, and it has to do with what Bernie talked about in his speech yesterday, I think, which, which was about it's not enough to agree with him about the policies. You have to believe you have a right to these policies. You have to believe you can win. So it's, you know, people expect us to be consoled with this idea of winning the intellectual battle, you know, winning the battle of ideas. That's not good enough. And that is what Bernie was saying. It's not enough to agree that the policies are needed if you don't believe you deserve them, right? And this is about the conspiracy of lowered expectations that is the legacy, not just of neoliberalism, um, but of the bloody war waged on the left, you know, and when I think about that trauma, I feel it in my own family. You know, I'm a third, I'm a third generation red diaper baby. My grandparents were socialists. My grandfather was blacklisted for union organizing. My, my parents had to leave the United States because my father was a war resistor. You know, this country lost, rejected them, really. Um, and there was a trauma in that for, 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 for a couple generations in my family. And, you know, my grandparents are, my grandparents are with me, but, you know, I had arguments with my own parents about Bernie because they told me, like so many lefty Jews of their generation, Americans will never vote for a democratic socialist. You know, they had to leave the U.S. because, because they were democratic socialists. Um, and, 
And the war waged on the African-American revolutionary tradition is so much bloodier um, than the war waged on the Jewish socialist tradition. Although, you know, my father and his cohorts grew up in the shadow of the Rosenberg, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, killings. And, and, and so, you know, when I went on the campaign, when I went on the Sanders campaign, I was speaking at his or to a canvas of 50 people, I would say, you know, I feel my ancestors with me because they never could have believed that we are as close to power as we are, right? And so there's something that is happening with the younger generation where they don't just believe that the policies are right. They believe that they can win them and that they have a right to win them, right? Whereas, whereas there, are, I think when we look at, like when I think about people who I met in Texas and, and Nevada and, 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 and Iowa who agreed with Bernie but weren't voting for him, um, it was because they were projecting onto the United States a deep, deep hatred of the left, you know? And this is something I don't think we talked enough about, right? This is a deep tradition, the war on the left. Right. And so when people said things that sounded sort of benign, like Bernie's never been vetted, which was bullshit. Right. What they were saying was Bernie has never faced the full force of American power and money red baiting him nonstop. And anybody who had a living memory of, you know, the, uh, the legacy of blacklisting, um, the war on the Black Panthers, the killing of, uh, of black revolutionary leaders, the exiling, the you know Kent State massacre. I mean, when 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 they heard that, they were like, well, of course Bernie can't survive that, right? Why would he? And so, I it just for me, I'm saying this because I think it crystallizes what our work is, right? It is not just convincing people that this is needed. It is convincing people that they that they have a right to it. Right. It is convincing people that we can win. Um, and that is kind of it's different work. It's really different work. Um, and so, yeah, that's I guess that's what I, that's what I'm left with. And sorry for the Moses metaphors and all that. You know, I mean, as an anti-Zionist Jew, the promised land. I mean, I just like I just want to just take it all back. But, you know, it did strike me that it is 2020. Reagan was elected in 1980, and that is 40 years ago. So we have been in 40 years of neoliberalism, and maybe it's time we can bury it. Thanks, Naomi. Hey, everyone. Uh, sorry about the audio quality. We're doing the best we can. We apparently need more leftists in tech. Who knew? Uh, our next speaker is Astrid. Taylor, the author of Democracy May Not Exist, but we'll miss it when it's gone, which is out on paperback in Maine. It's also the name of her most recent documentary film. She also wrote the foreword to a debt collective book coming out soon from Haymarket called Can't Pay, Won't Pay. Uh, we were also supposed to go on a walk two weeks ago, but the plague hit. Please welcome Astrid Taylor. Hey everybody, um, it's so nice to be here with friends. It was an incredibly sad day yesterday. Um, 
And I got the news actually that the Sanders campaign was suspended while I was on an organizing call learning from um, one of the young people involved in the Sunrise Movement. Um, and so that, that did feel like an appropriate context because it was about how to keep going and how to keep building power. Um, uh, but also it was good to be, be with comrades. You know, I, I just wrote something today to kind of gather my thoughts that just went up uh, at the In These Times website about um, the end of the Sanders campaign. And I began with the, you know, the idea that basically I think history is going to look very, very kindly on Bernie Sanders. You know, he, I, I can imagine these future historians being like, wow, that, that was an option. That was the path that should have been taken. So I think, you know, the question now is what, what, how will history judge the us, the of the not me us, you know, what, what, what will we do um, with this, with this legacy and with the ground that he helped to lay? So, you know, I want to pick up on different threads, Naomi and Kianga mentioned. And one, I think, and, you know, it's echoed through all of this is what was so refreshing about the Sanders campaign was that there was a theory of power implicit in it, right? Um, and this was one of the, the dynamics of the campaign. It was like, you know, it wasn't just about having plans or uh, campaign promises, but always threading that needle of saying, yes, you know, electoral politics are important, but we need social movements. We need power for working people behind that. And I think this is, you know, we're in, I think one one thing that we can now say is, you know, a lot of these left-wing proposals that we were told were totally crazy are now, we know they're popular and they're getting more popular by the moment in the midst of this pandemic. So I I think now what we need to do is try to argue that they are possible and um and in fact you know not just necessary but 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 realistic and people cannot just desire them but believe in them and put their energy towards them so um you know i think right now there's a temptation i mean i feel it myself to just like want to say like fuck electoral politics this is like a waste but i think we have to keep trying to live in that tension that the sanders campaign embodied there are lots of um you know, leftists running for, for office. It's obviously a tougher conditions right now, but I think we have to continue to try to do that, building power relentlessly outside and, and engaging. We need we need um, to keep going, even if it's frustrating. And, you know, there is something I'm just thinking about. I mean, if you had told me 10 years ago that a democratic socialist would win millions of votes in the United States, I would have thought that that was totally impossible, like a fantasy. And so, you know, if nothing else, we don't have to keep pointing back to Eugene Debs, you know, a hundred years ago and say, hey, a hundred years ago, a socialist got a million votes, you know? And so I guess I just, I'm like, let's not wait another hundred years for a milestone like this. You know, I'm down with this, like we had 40 years in the wilderness, let's get the hell out of it. Um, so yeah, not me us. I mean, I think, you know, also <laughs> reality endorsed Bernie Sanders. I love that phrase. And the thing is it endorsed him too late. You know, I mean, it's like this conjecture where and the timing just feels off. It's one thing to live through a pandemic. It's like, that's painful. Um, it's also pa painful to live through, uh, you know, a historic mistake, which is, you know, what I think uh, we've made. But I think this the slogan, not me, us, just, you know, it it's so viscerally clear right now that we're only as safe as secure as our most vulnerable neighbor. And that means like the neighbor in our cities, but also our neighbors across the globe. I mean, we're all interdependent. So I just, you know, I'm thinking about a few things, you know, if we're kind of thinking about the Sanders campaign, a few things I really appreciated or I'm thinking about this moment. I mean, one is, I think the fact he had to bow out under these conditions is an indictment of our so-called democracy, right? People could not vote without endangering their lives. 
in the United States. And that's partly because, you know, advocates who have been fighting for things like, you know, easy voting by mail uh, systems, right, for decades, because the mail has been around for a while, you know, have been um, ignored. Because honestly, you know, the Republicans are worse when it comes to voter suppression, but Democrats aren't crazy about mass turnout either. You know, this making our democracy truly universal, um, actually putting um, force behind the catchphrase, one person, one vote, to actually say, no, let's have one person, one meaningful vote, one equally weighted vote, one easy to cast vote, uh, is something you know that um, politicians haven't prioritized. And so I think we're in a moment where, you know, we've kind of, I think leftists have not put voting reforms sort of front and center, they tend to be really wonky. The demands also kind of tend to just be like, yeah, automatic voting, voter registration or let's get rid of gerrymandering. And so I hope this moment is actually one where we kind of open our imaginations on that front as well, because you know he had to make a choice for basically to not endanger people's lives in this context. And a lot of us did not get to vote um, for Sanders when, you know, I think in a two person race down to Biden and Bernie to have more ballots cast for Bernie to say, this is the progressive agenda we want would have been very powerful. And I'm really fucking aggrieved that I was denied that opportunity. Um, I think this also speaks to Naomi's point about young people. There is a generational divide that's massive. This is also something I wrote about in a long piece for the New York Times. Young people are at a unique electoral disadvantage in our fucked up political system because young people are congregated in urban centers. They're youth, more youthful, more diverse, more progressive, and their votes do not count. We don't have one person, one equally weighted vote. So this is part of the challenge of the coalition that's, that Bernie was trying to build, you know, getting out the youth vote, creating this generational momentum is that there are structural obstacles to young people enacting this kind of political power. And so the left has to be serious about those challenges. It's not just, um, uh, you know, unfortunately, older rural homeowners have a lot more political power. Their votes literally count for more in the system we have. And so that's one of the challenges of, um, that was one of the challenges he was facing. So that's something I think that's important. Um, the other thing I guess I wanna say is, you know, the other night there was something that I really appreciated about Sanders. So he's been having these live streams and I just wanna mention two of them. He's been having these conversations and using his, he was using his campaign in this brilliant way in this pandemic to elevate the discourse. The other night he had Sonia Shah, a journalist on who wrote a book called Pandemic. And you know, we are in a moment where science denial is a huge force. This is a big part of it's well practiced. I mean, science denial has has um, impeded the climate justice movement. And so those old tropes were just picked right up and used in this context. And, and so what Bernie had, Bernie Sanders had this amazing conversation with Sonia Shah about the true origins of this novel coronavirus, right? This is not a natural disaster. Yes, this virus evolved in the natural world. It wasn't built in some laboratory, as some conspiracy theorists might say, but it jumped from animal species to human beings because human beings are encroaching on the natural world because of our uh, land use. Nice way of saying that we're basically destroying the natural world and gobbling up the land for industrial food production. Production, um, the fact that small farmers cannot compete with corporate agriculture and so are driven to hunt um, wild animals and sell those. So this is this is because of economic political structures that this disaster, that this pathogen emerged and and has now spread across the globe. And I think just for Sanders to have that conversation and to say 
you know, this, we need much to open a space to think about the deeper structural fixes we need to prevent future pandemics, um, I think was really important. And that's the kind of political re uh, realism we actually need um, uh, from our leaders. The, I think two nights ago, like everyone, I'm losing track of time. He had the historian Barbara Ramsey um, on, and they talked a little bit about the student debt uh, cancellation work that the group I am part of, the Debt Collective, has been working on. Um, you know, Senator Sanders was huge in pushing the idea uh, or, or taking up from the grassroots the idea that student debt should be canceled and college should be free. Um, and and that is something we're, we're even seeing, you know, Joe Biden feel like he has to bend on. Um, so I think that, you know, using using his live streams as a forum to discuss that. And I think that that's a there's a, a politics to this idea of canceling student debt that, that's bigger even than domestic politics. Right. Because he is also on the record saying that um, uh, the Puerto Rican debt crisis also needed to be handled um, by erasing some of that that debt by, by sort of understanding that we need economic relationships that are not just um, punitive and extractive but actually give regular people the space to breathe and have the things that they need so you know i think it's a you know it's tragic right now uh to be in the place we're in i think um ideas that we once thought were totally impractical are more popular and sort of well-known than they were before. And it's really up to us to continue to do the work of making them reality. Because like, like Naomi said, you know, I don't just want to win the war of ideas. I want to actually take power and begin to make this world a better place. Thanks, Astra. Uh, everybody, your questions are fantastic. Please keep asking them on the Haymarket Twitter uh, and on YouTube, if you're seeing this live, if you're seeing this after the live stream is done, obviously don't ask questions because time is linear. <laughs> now, Naomi is going to introduce uh, our next guest, Victoria Dooley. Hey, Naomi. Thank you, thank you, Hari, and um, wow, uh, and, and thank you, Astra. There's so much to think about, and I think it's a really important reminder that we need to, we have a right to be angry. Um, and anger, it's not the only fuel um, that we need. You know, we need love too, um, but we need anger and we have to be angry um, in the face of massive injustice. Um, and, and we are really lucky to have an expert with us, somebody who is, very much on the front lines of this pandemic. Um, you know, one of the most frustrating things about being a Sanders surrogate uh, supporter is just this, the gulf between the way the campaign was represented in the media and online as, you know, this toxic bunch of bros um, and the reality of what it was like to actually participate in the campaign pain. Um, it, 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 it was an incredibly kind place. Um, and, uh, and, and, and I have to say an incredibly feminist place. Um, and, um, I met some of the most amazing women I've ever met, 
uh, on the Sanders campaign. And one of them is with us tonight, uh, Dr. Victoria Dooley, who was one of uh, Bernie's strongest surrogates. She is a family physician at the Northville Novi Family Medicine, at, at, at Northville Novi Family Medicine. Um, she is also a writer published in places like the New York Times, um, and one of this country's fiercest advocates for Medicare for All. Um, so Dr. Dooley, I, um, I just wanna start by asking you, first of all, thank you for being with us. Um, and you know, Kianga spoke about this, um, the way this pandemic is playing out in the United States as um, the bitter harvest of American racism. Um, what does that look like from your perspective? Um, thank you. Thank you for having me, Naomi. Um, I'm angry. I'm going to admit, full disclosure, I did not feel like putting on my, my Easter pastels and uh, coming on with you guys today. I wanted to stay in my taco stain t-shirt in the bed and my significant other forced me to get up and join you today. And I'm glad that they did. So thank you for having me here. Um, it's tough. Uh, I have been dealing with my patients who have been struggling with pain, affording insulin. Um, I have patients who I need to get cancer screenings like colonoscopies and mammograms. And they just flat out tell me the screening might be free, but I don't want to know if I have cancer because I know if I have cancer, I'm going to go bankrupt. So it's just this system is so horrible. Um, I completed my training in Flint, Michigan, and it was even a little easier there because um, most people were underinsured and they had Medicaid, but I kind of knew what Medicaid covered. And I had my $4 Walmart list so I can get them something. It might not be the idea what they needed, but I could get them something. Um, but now I'm practicing in a different city and it's more diverse and, and everybody is having challenges. Uh, but my African-American patients, my patients of color, my Latinx patients um, seem to be having uh, more challenges disproportionately. And I don't know if that's just because they are or if it's more because they are more comfortable um, conveying those challenges to me, being a female of color. Um, but I, I'm very frustrated about what's going on. Uh, it's shocking, but it's not surprising. Um, just look what happened in Flint with the Flint water crisis that would not have happened in the suburb that I live in. What happened to Flint absolutely would not have happened in, in where I live. And so the fact that this pandemic is hitting us as a people so hard, uh, it's very stressful. Um, but it's not surprising. My brother, and he knows that I talk about it. He, he has no problems. He, he was in the hospital for five days. He was a principal in the city of Detroit. Um, Detroit, uh, about 40% of people dying from coronavirus in Michigan are African-American compared to 70% in Chicago. But again, we don't have all the data. So it might be 70%, but they're not releasing the races of everyone. So we don't know. Detroit is a very hard hit city. So he was in the hospital for five days and, and we didn't know if he was going to make it. Um, he's a father, um, but he had all the risk factors. He was a black male. He um, was overweight. He had diabetes. He had high blood pressure. He had sleep apnea. So all those chronic health conditions, um, I figured if anybody in my family was going to end up in the hospital, it would probably be him. Um, but it just underscores the fact how much we have to potentially gain with this presidential election and how much we have to lose. Um, when you think about Senator Sanders' policies, and his platform. I was so excited about him because his universal policies made sure that nobody who was black or brown or indige indigenous was left behind. The only way that I can make sure that we can excel as a people, as a black people, the only way I can make sure that all of my black patients are covered 
uh, is to make sure that we have a universal plan that covers everybody. Um, thing when you think about canceling student debt, African Americans are more likely to graduate with about $50,000 worth of student debt compared to $30,000 worth of student debt for Caucasians. And the only way I can make sure that no black female student debt doesn't get canceled, because black females are one of the most agreed people on earth, um, is that if we cancel all student debt. So he got a lot of pushback for having universal policies. Well, you know, what is his black agenda? Well, the fact that his policies are universal, that right there is a black agenda because no black person is going to be left behind, as opposed to when you have these really false means-tested policies that exclude people. Because in every effort that we've made in this country to ensure more people, whether it be the Affordable Care Act or um, increasing Medicaid, um, there's always a disproportionate amount of poor black and brown people left behind every single time. And I don't think that's a coincidence, I don't. Um, I think the politicians and people in charge know that if we enact universal policies, all people of color, all poor, uh, all indigenous, all Latinx people are gonna benefit. And, and for, for some reason, they just they just get off by, by excluding some of us. And that's just not right. So I'm angry. Um, I'm angry at a lot of my physician colleagues. Um, I'm a part of a grassroots group called Doctors for Bernie. That's a really exciting organization. But again, if you look like this corona crisis that is disproportionately, disproportionately affecting African-Americans, black doctors should know that. And so I'm upset that there's not more doctors of color who join me in the movement. Um, we have a lot of doctors. Again, there's a group, Doctors for Bernie. But I feel like we should, as a brown people, as Latinx people, more of us should have been speaking up because we had so much more to lose. Um, and we had so much more to gain with Senator Sanders being in the race. Um, so when I think about going forward, um, you love the man, love Bernie Sanders. If I love Bernie. You ask anybody who knows me. Yes, I absolutely 101% love Bernie and I'm going to be a Sanders sister for life. But you have to commit to the movement. Um, so we can't get discouraged that Senator Sanders is not in the race and give up. Um, he has been fighting for universal health care for decades. So we can't say after four years, hey, we joined this in 2015, 2016, and now we dropped out again. We're going to give up. We can't. You can never tire of doing what's right because there's so much on the line and so much that we have to lose. Um, so what are some of the things that I suggest you do? Um, join DSA. Uh, Detroit DSA has been a wonderful group. Please join DSA. Personally, I'm, I'm going to start working on a nonprofit um, that's, that is going to be geared towards improving health disparities, something that I've been wanting to do for a while but have not been able to jump into because of the campaign duty. So I'm really excited about doing that. But as long as Black people make up 40% of the homeless population, um, as long as Black people are twice as likely to be uninsured as, 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 as white people, um, as long as Black women are stuck in minimum wage jobs and we don't have a minimum wage, we are going to continue to have adverse health outcomes. And so there's only so much that I can do as a physician. Um, we have to join together and demand demand better. Um, no, it's not going to be easy, but nothing worth having is, is easy. It wasn't easy to free the slaves. We literally had to go to war. Thousands of us had to die. It was not easy. But that doesn't mean that, that we should simply give up and be complacent. Uh, we should not stop fighting to end cash bail. Uh, people are locked up and suffering uh, for the crime of 
not having enough money to afford bail. They had been charged, you know, they've been found guilty of no crime, but because they're poor, they're locked up in jail and they're facing death from the coronavirus because they're not being released. So there's just too much at stake. It's okay to be angry. I'm angry. I'm going to go through my various stages of grief. But again, we have to commit to the movement, not just the man, not just the man. And that's why his slogan was what? Not me, us. And so I'm really excited to be part of us and to continue to fight for what is right, um, to fight for somebody that I don't know. And we must never not stop fighting for somebody that we don't know. So thank you. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. It's great to see you. Thanks for thanks for getting out of bed and putting on that beautiful blue. <laughs> Cheered me up. Um, do you have any final words you want to share about just next steps for the Medicare for All fight specifically? Medicare for All specifically, we have to vote better. Um, if you're in St. Louis, Missouri area, please vote for Cori Bush, my girl. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, Senator Sanders, he might not be a president, but there's still a lot of progressive candidates who are running uh, on Medicare for All. So please donate to them, vote for them. This is a fight that we cannot give up on. Um, so yeah, just please, the other the Congress, congressional candidates, uh, check them out, then donate your time, vote for them, canvas for them, the same things you're doing for, for Bernie Sanders, you have to do for them so that we can one day achieve our goal of Medicare for all. Thank you. Um, I donated to Corey's campaign yesterday. Um, another one of the incredible women I met on the on the Sanders on the Sanders Road. Um, and uh, those of you who saw Knock Down the House, uh, starring Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, also met Cory Bush, and um, they talked about um, you know how I think what they they say a hundred hundred of us have to want, have to run for one of us to win. Maybe we can improve those numbers. Um, Corey was hospitalized a few days ago. Um, she contracted the coronavirus. She um, you know, was was hit really hard, but is on the mend. And she is just an absolutely incredible fighter. Um, it would be amazing to have her in Congress. Um, thank you for that. And I think you know what you were saying about DSA. Um, if I just would just chime in, you know, this is such a hard period because. We have never had more reason to be in the streets and we can't be right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there, there has been, there've been, there's been amazing, um, courageous strike actions. And I know we'll talk about that, um, a little bit more, but I think we have to be very strategic about how we use this period, um, where we, where our actions are so limited, right? Like what are the things that we can do you can that get will, in your car, you can pile in your car and you, you can go strike in your car with masks on maintaining social distancing. And that's yeah. what we were talking about at DSA meeting earlier this week. So. Right, right. Um, and there has been some of that. But I think political education is something that we can do um, in quarantine. Um, and, and, you know, I'm grateful to Haymarket for giving away books for free and doing all kinds of things like that for DSA for taking political education seriously, but also being a membership-based organization. I think these are things that we, you know, when we think about how we get ourselves in the optimal position to really race out of the gate when we are able to, to leave our 
our, our, our versions of quarantine, right? Um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's building those memberships uh, bases, deepening our knowledge, widening our circle. These are some of the things that we can do so that when we're able to walk out of our homes, we are actually running, we're sprinting. Thank you, Dr. Dooley. Thank you, Naomi. Uh, I'm going to open up. Uh, I'm going to open this up to uh, to the audience. A lot of you have asked questions. So I'm going to uh, I'm going to get to right now. The first one is from someone, uh, the user with the username the design flaw. The question is, what are tactics that our movement can employ to minimize or change the narrative uh, that is controlled clearly by, by the corporate media? Um, can I? I have a answer. Um, I wanted to say a couple of things actually uh, about that. Um, one is that uh, people are still um, protesting, striking. I I don't know what actually happened uh, today, but I read last night that um, uh, several hundred uh, fast food workers across California. Uh, we're planning uh, strike action um, because of the deplorable actions of their management and ownership, which refused to provide hand sanitizer, gloves, uh, and other safety uh, uh, equipment. And this was in response to um, uh, at least two workers at a McDonald's in California contracting COVID. Um, and so, you know, the pictures of the uh, workplace actions that have already happened show that there are uh, workers standing outside of their uh, workplaces six feet apart from each other, um, but with signs and uh, some attention to, to media so that, that people are there, uh, that they can actually talk about um, their situation. I know that there's another uh, uh, case in, in Chicago where um, you know, this is always the, the, the contrast where politicians uh, get on television and, and talk about how shocked and horrified they are uh, about these uh, disparities concerning black death um, and the coronavirus and, and that we need a task force and we need to do this and that. And then, you know, after the news goes off, they're closing a fucking public hospital. So in Chicago, the African-American uh, 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 president uh, or uh, of Cook County, which is the larger county that encompasses uh, Chicago, uh, who is also the chairperson of the Democratic Party there, um, actually has closed the emergency room um, of a hospital on the south side of Chicago, which people uh, will know or should know is a historically black neighborhood um, area of the of the city, um, because one person at the hospital contracted the virus. One healthcare worker contracted the virus. Of course, we've heard stories for weeks now that thousands of healthcare workers um, are contracting the, the coronavirus because uh, there is not enough um, um, uh, personal protective uh, equipment uh, for them. But in I think 100% of these cases, the response has not been to shut down the hospital or to close an emergency room. Um, but that was the that, that was the case in this situation. But uh, nurses there uh, have organized. Uh, uh, Dennis Kosuth, who's a, a nurse at this hospital, who's also part of National Nurses United, uh, helped to organize. 
uh, the protests. And it, it was a similar thing where you have nurses who are out um, with signs six feet apart, um, but who are out able to address the public about uh, what is happening. And there's a petition, I'll post it on Twitter, uh, for people to sign to demand that the hospital actually, the emergency room actually be uh, reopened. That in the midst of a pandemic is not really the time uh, to close a, a uh, uh, in ER, but I think the the general point is that at various points of uh, uh, struggle, we can look at where uh, ordinary people have had to find creative ways to resist the constraints that are imposed upon them. Whether it's Jim Crow in the South, where it's illegal to protest, you still must find ways to protest. Um, and so Martin Luther King in 1960 congratulated black students for coming up with the uh, uh, um, sit-in uh, sit counter uh, protest, black students for their creative uh, uh, efforts to figure out a way to circumvent uh, the uh, Jim Crow prohibitions. Of course, the union movement in uh, uh, Flint, Michigan in the 1930s engaged in sit-down strikes to actually force uh, the company to recognize uh, their right to bargain um, collectively. And so I think in similar ways, we will have to figure out uh, uh, ways to uh, engage in social protest uh, while also social um, distancing and recognizing that this is not a, a finite uh, uh, condition. And so um, I think that there are still things that we can do. There are still things that um, uh, uh, people are doing and that um, we actually have quite a bit to learn from each other. Does uh, anyone else have comments, or sh should I ask another question? I'm assuming that means I'm going to ask another question. Thanks, Kanga. Um, so this one specifically is for Naomi. What does Naomi think about the fact that a GOP senator just proposed a Denmark-style plan to pay 80% of all workers' wages? Why is this coming from the right? Because the Democrats are, for the most part, completely useless um, and have positioned themselves so that they can actually be outflanked on the left by Republicans and Donald Trump, um, you know, obviously with notable exceptions. But, um, but, but that's why it is happening. And that's why we've been engaged in, in, in the battle that we've been engaged in uh, to try to take that party away from corporate Democrats. Um, and when Bernie dared to say that he was up against the Democratic establishment, everyone's heads exploded. Um, um, but look, the depths of this economic crisis that we are going into, um, we have not wrapped our heads around this. We, it, this is not a short-term blip. Um, it is moving faster than anything we have seen before. Um, the rates of unemployment are, are it, it's, it, it boggles the mind. And so there is going to be state intervention of, uh, uh, of a kind that, that has not happened in, in a century, potentially ever. Um, certainly not with the with with a, with a global economy like ours, right? Um, and the question is, what values are going to govern that intervention? And we so we have to do a lot of things at once. My colleagues at the Leap are, have been working on a frame of um, a three-stage frame. 
rescue, that's the stage we're in, recovery, that's the stage we hope to get to, but, but also reimagine, right? And, and the reimagining needs to start now because we need a do not resuscitate order on the parts of our economy that are at war with life on earth, that are abusing people and the planet alike, right? Um, our goal should not be to crowd the skies again with airplanes. I'm sorry. Um, our goal should not be to, to crowd our oceans again with cruise ships. I'm sorry. We need to figure out how to protect the workers from those sectors as we use our public money to take public ownership over key industries and manage them, right? We are seeing skies clear around the world. And this is happening because of a crash. We don't want to happen because of a crash. We now have to figure out how to keep the skies clear by craft, okay, by managing this. So we need to design economic stimulus that creates the economy we actually want because the old economy is lying dead on the floor, okay? Um, so that's why we're seeing those kinds of bold proposals from the Republican Party, okay? That should be our cue to be putting extremely bold policies on the table, even bolder than Sanders was able to propose during this election campaign, right? I mean, we talked last time about the, the, the millions of businesses that are going to be going bankrupt that should come under employee ownership, cooperative ownership. Um, this is practical. This is not utopian thinking because there are no ideas within the current economic arsenal to address the, the crisis that we are in. This is not something capitalism can do. And the frightening thing is that obviously we can't trust these Republicans. Um, and, and, you know, they're worried about getting reelected right now. But what we need to be focused on right now is that despite the fact that we are living the, 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 the death toll of what it means to wage systemic war on the public sphere, right, on all of these hospitals that Kianga's describing that have been so systematically starved, but look, look how close the healthcare system in the United States was to crisis. It took a couple of days of stress for it to go into full-blown crisis because it had been cut to the bone already because that's what for-profit medicine looks like. But in other countries that have public health care, they've cut it back so much too and internalized the logic of the market within their public systems, right? That they had no buffer whatsoever. Um, so what terrifies me, right, is that we are headed for a time of big change. There is no scenario where we just bounce back to where we were. Um, and every, even though we are seeing the, the brutal impacts of decades of austerity and cutbacks and public-private partnerships and all of that, right? Every public institution that we have is now in crisis, okay? Because the tax base, the tax base has disappeared. And they were already relying on some form um, uh, of, of revenue sharing with customers in the case of public transit or public universities um, relying on various kinds of student fees that they have lost, right? Um, and so 
Like, this is why it matters that we don't drink the Kool-Aid that having won the battle of ideas means we've won any kind of war. Bullshit. They will shut down our public schools. They will shut down what is left of public hospitals. They will shut down public transit because public transit has lost its revenue model. They will do it in the middle of a climate crisis if we let them. Okay. So, you know, when we say socialism or barbarism, like, this is it, guys. Like, we are changing fast in a hurry. And we will either end up somewhere much worse than we were before this crisis hit, or we will end up somewhere that is better and fundamentally different and fundamentally changed that is this much more crafted economy that is about building up the parts of our the parts of our society that are that are saving our lives right now, you know, like the care economy. Um, uh, I don't even like calling it a, an economy, but the the, the sectors are of our uh, of our society that are about taking care of one another, and we need to take care of the planet too. Um, but that's not going to happen through the kind of stimulus bill that would be designed by these politicians left to their own devices. That last question uh, was by Matthias Lalise. The next question by Catherine Princeton. What do you all think of Bill Gates and his mega foundation and their involvement in what is unfolding? That's open to anybody. Anybody at all? I think, I think, um, okay. I was worried the silence kind of said all. <laughs> I don't think much. I mean, I, I think that we just, this model of charitable, quote unquote, charitable intervention, uh, the overblown role of philanthropists, um, we have to, this is all part of the same dynamic that uh, Naomi has just been um, describing. What would actually be more effective is that if we tax uh, Bill Gates' wealth at 99% um, and then took that money uh, under democratic control, under the purview of voters, um, and actually rebuilt a public infrastructure uh, that could sustain uh, crises of this nature. Um, and so I, I just think this entire reliance on, on philanthropy and charity in place of government is part of the problem. And we, we have to get away from this model. Our next question is from uh, DA. Are third parties a viable option? And also, in addition, this is a question that multiple people have asked. You know, what is, uh, in, in part, as part of reimagining our movement, does starting a new political party fit into that? Can I talk a little bit about that? Um, I mean, I think this is something I, I thought a lot about and, and write a little bit about in the democracy book. The problem is, you know, we have this idea of the Democrats versus the Republican and this two-party nightmare that we're living in, but they lock arm in arm, in arm and they're actually really together in terms of keeping out third-party challengers, right? That's when their agendas are aligned. And so there are all sorts of obstacles in terms of ballot access and um, hoops and barriers to third-party challengers. Now, I think it can work really well right at the level we have you know um, someone from socialist alternative in Seattle I think I guess my, my feeling is if the left was organized enough to build a viable third party 
that could seize power at, for example, the presidential level, we'd be more than organized enough to take over the hollow, corrupt Democratic Party, because it actually implies a level of organization and cohesion that um, that we don't have. And I think one of the sort of part of the thing about the Democrats, the Democratic the parties in the U.S. is that they're, they are they are sort of hollow. I mean, yes, they're they got in line around Biden and, and we know their donor structures and all this. But then, you know, we just saw a socialist almost take over. So I'm I'm skeptical about that approach. I mean, I, I think that we do as frustrating as it is, you know, we need we need power to be able to write rewrite the rules of the game. That's the thing. Those who rule make the rules. And so right now we're working under a system of electoral laws that you know really um put the kibosh on on third parties so there are, are things like for example reforms for like ranked choice voting that open up space for third parties we see that in maine which is you know not you know the furthest left state and i think the left should be looking at those examples of ways to intervene in the system as it exists i mean that's why i think this emphasis needs to be on social movements on counter power and i just want to echo you know what dr julie said like join dsa this is a moment when we need to join shit because we have not the numbers are on our side our policies are popular but that doesn't mean anything if we're not aggregated and organized and strategic so join dsa join sunrise join our starter union join the debt collective um support tenant strikes uh run for office yourself like this is a moment when we need to start um forming cohesive blocks so that we can leverage power over the electoral system because it would be nice if we could rule one day and then we could make the the more democratic and more just. Um, and I also wanted to say that I think some of my um, collaborators are going to drop a link into the chat that has a sort of list of different strikes and actions, um, mostly in the US, but some international that maybe folks can join or, or contribute uh, other examples of. Um, th this is a question that I have just generally regarding the language we use. How much of do we need and forgive me for using this language do we need to rebrand the word socialism do we need another word it just feels like that word gets co-opted so quickly that word gets misused that word all these people are, are talking about gulags like do we need to find another way to talk about what we care about avoiding the language that has traditionally been used No. Moving on. No. <laughs> what, are, what are you talking about? It's more socialism is more popular like now than it's been in decades. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think maybe not on MSNBC, you know, or CNN, but it, every set of, you know, the, the this crazy poll that asks, you know, do you like socialism more? And the numbers are skewing off the charts for uh, for, for socialism. And so I think that actually uh, people are embracing this idea more. There's a difference between that and being so utterly cynical about U.S. politics and the political system that you don't actually believe that it's possible uh, to, you know, or that, that you can vote for Bernie Sanders, that he stands a chance of doing anything that his program talks about in the Congress. And that, that's actually not crazy. I'm not sure what you could look at over the last 15 years in our government 
and think that anything was possible to produce out of that body. That you know what I mean? Like, you know, that this is the body of the Congress where the average income or the average wealth of a US senator is three million dollars. The average wealth of a person in the House of Representatives is $990,000, that out of that body, we're going to actually produce a, a, a plan for universal health care. So it's not crazy that people think, you know, could support and love Bernie's ideas, um, but then feel like you can't actually uh, uh, vote for him. And so to me, that says that people are somewhere open to this idea of, of, of socialism, this idea that um, you know, uh, uh, that, that we should change the formulation of having uh, the 1% be in control uh, of, of all the resources. I do think that, in fact, we should, you know, dive into this and expand our understanding of socialism, that it's not just about state control, that it should be about the popular control of, of people in this, in this country, that those of us who create the wealth in society should actually have some democratic say and control over how it's distributed, over how it's used, and over how our society uh, actually functions. And I think now more than ever that that is an idea uh, uh, that, that, that people are, are open to. So we don't need to get rid of it. We need to embrace it um, and dig in the fight uh, uh, for a socialist future. This next question is from uh, Stephanie Hung. Can you talk about the Green New Deal and how we should fight for that, framing it around COVID? Does anybody, Astrid, did you want to say anything about this? <laughs> um, so the, the Green New Deal um, is a, um, a framing that, that is borrowed it, it is a it, it, it is a rebranding, if you will, of the original New Deal, um, uh, and and that set of that era really, because it wasn't a policy or even a set of policies. It was it was a decade um, of rapid change in the United States that introduced its meager social safety net and left out a whole lot of people, um, but um, still was the most rapid uh, um, period of progressive change um, when it comes to you know, social security, unemployment insurance, a great deal of public housing, breaking up the banks, electrifying rural America, getting a ton of money to artists, planting a couple billion trees, starting hundreds of state parks. Um, that was possible because of the Great Depression um, and the Dust Bowl. And, you know, when I was out in September and October talking to audiences with my book, with On Fire, the burning case for a Green New Deal, making the argument that if we look at the New Deal era, at, the, at, 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 at both its victories and its failures, its inclusions and exclusions, we have a response to the relentless naysaying that we hear from centrists, which is, we can't do big things. Let's just tinker around the edges. And when it comes to the climate crisis, we know that will not get us where we need to go. In fact, it is almost the same as doing nothing because we have 
waited so long and allowed the planet to heat so much, right, that what we need to do is, as the IPCC said, fundamentally transform virtually every aspect of society. Um, and that's what the Green New Deal is about. But the pushback that I got when I was when I was talking about this in the fall was, yeah, but that was the Great Depression. Um, and right now there's low unemployment and the economy is booming. Um, so like 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 I'm not like I'm not saying it's a slam dunk. I just said what I'm most worried about is that they is that is that they will wage war on the meager public sphere that we have left and finish the war against the New Deal, which is what the neoliberal era has all been about. Right. Um, but in terms of making the argument for the need for that kind of bold policymaking, um, you know, uh, it, it is it, 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 I think it is more possible to do that in the midst of an economic crisis than when the economy was supposedly doing well. Now, we all knew that that doing well um, was on the backs of huge numbers of working poor workers, right, who were working three jobs, who were working gig jobs. Um, the pandemic has also outed that, right? So I think partly what we're seeing is what it looks like for governments to treat an emergency like an emergency, right? Which is what the climate movement has been asking for, for demanding for a long time. And, you know, there wasn't a kind of a living memory of what it meant to treat an emergency like an emergency. I, um, and now we're kind of seeing it. The other thing, you know, coming back to what Dr. Dooley was talking about earlier, what Kiang was talking about, about, um, you know, part of the reason why this, um, this virus is, 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 um, is, has such high mortality rates in African-American communities um, is because those communities are under the most intense stress, right? So these diseases of hypertension, diabetes, but they are also linked to environmental racism, that these are communities that have the dirtiest industries cited in their backyards and front yards, um, and African-American bodies have borne the toxic brunt of the addiction to fossil fuels, which makes it all the more outrageous that not just Trump, but governments around the world are using this pandemic to ram through more fossil fuel projects and roll back environmental standards that were protecting the air and water. I mean, the, the EPA is currently not enforcing regulations, um, but it's not just Trump. I mean, China has announced that it's going to be reviving its economy um, by not enforcing uh, um, environmental standards. Australia is trying to push through all kinds of coal projects in the midst of this pandemic. Um, so, you know, we really have our work cut out for us and we can't lose um, confidence and focus, right? I mean, like I have written about the shock doctrine for many years now. I wish I didn't have to. I wish that book could be compost, right? Um, but the, the, the fact is that the people we are up against do not blink during times of crisis. They are more determined um, uh, uh, to push through their policies, policies that deepen our vulnerability to crises, that make things worse, that make future crises worse. So the least that we can do is not lose our nerve in the midst of this crisis, because our policies actually are a route out of crisis. And I would say the Green New Deal most of all, um, because it is a huge economic stimulus and we need it. And everybody, you know, like, 
the New York Times, the Financial Times are suddenly calling for these sorts of massive interventions that for the past um, months in the face of the Green New Deal were telling us how impractical it was. It's no surprise. Um, but, you know, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for the Sunrise Movement and all the environmental justice groups, you know, how, who have set up this framework that we have now. And now we just have to fight for it. This yeah. next, this Astor next. wanted to say something. Yeah, I just want to pick up what you've said. Um, a huge plus ones to all of it. Um, one thought is, you know, the Civilian Conservation Corps, that's what it was called in the New Deal era, right? I mean, planting trees makes so much sense in terms of both emissions, but also preventing pandemics like COVID-19, because part of the problem is the, we're encroaching on the natural world and reducing biodiversity. Um, so I think some of the things we can do to solve both crises are actually one and the same. But really, I want to um, just, since so many people are watching from around the world, sort of echo what Kianga and Dr. Dooley and Yaomi have said about the this sort of uh, socioeconomic components and the spread of this disease and take that to the global level, right? Because the things we're seeing, the exact same patterns of um, the most poor and vulnerable people being the most vulnerable to uh, this disease. Kianga had this phrase in her piece in The New Yorker that um, coronavirus will spread, I think it was through the intimacy of poverty, I think it's first important to say, okay, well, that wasn't how it spread initially, right? Because the disease won't spread so quickly across the globe if it's not going on an airplane. And only 20% of human beings have ever been on a plane. Uh, and now there's a you know a story in the New York Times today that said actually, initially when this novel coronavirus came to New York City it was actually from European tourists, right? So when we know they're kind of doing enough tracing to say, oh, Italian tourists brought it to um, the African continent. So, you know, wealth, I think um, Trustee McMillan Cotton said something like wealth is a vector. Um, and we also saw it uh, take root in ski resorts and stuff like that. So we need to challenge that old frame that that disease spreads almost, you know, intrinsically from um, poor communities. But but now I think that it's a global pandemic. We will see conditions where people, you know, are not able to uh, self-isolate, right, or, or don't have the privilege of quarantine, and where um, they don't have the privilege of staying home from work, and where they don't have adequate food and nutrition, we'll see um, this pandemic hit them much worse. And so there's a sort of exactly the same dynamics in the United States playing out in the global south. And this, I guess this also brings me to one thing, like connecting, I gave a sort of discussion of, of debt politics in the United States context in the, the last webinar, um, and a very similar thing is happening internationally in terms of sovereign debt. Like I think if the, I would say one thing I would say to the global North and to people in the United States right now is um, we absolutely need to fight not just for debt cancellation for working people in the US, but for debt cancellation internationally, because we are about to see an explosion of um, sovereign debt with, as there's a massive capital flight happening from the global South, something like, I think I read in the Financial Times four times the rate um, that it was after the 2008 economic crisis. These are also countries that are usually like very export dependent. Um, and so this, the states that were already, you know, inadequate, right, are gonna be totally starved of revenue. We have countries like, you know, I was just reading about Liberia where there's three ventilators in the entire country, 5 million people, and those three ventilators are held uh, in, in private hands, right? They're not even in the public hospital system. So you have, um, you just have a disastrous 
situation emerging and a coalition is forming demanding debt cancellation. So this is a type of movement that actually had some success in the early aughts and desperately needs to be revived. So I just want to bring, you know, just sort of make the case that all these things are, are connected. We're seeing the same dynamics locally and also globally. Our last question today is from Emma B.B. Doyle. The question is, can you talk about the way our inability to pay rent could catalyze the movement? For example, maybe an obligatory, maybe an obligatory, oh my God, maybe an obligatory tenant strike. Is there precedent for that? I personally feel like there is, um, but it's just shameful that we have to go to that route. Um, in a sane, functional society, there would be a freeze on rents and mortgages. The government would just do that as a sane, compassionate society. Um, so I believe there there is a, is a role for it. Um, and it's just sad and shameful that we would have to go, go to that, how the government would not acknowledge that, yes, if people are not working, obviously they're not going to be able to pay their bills. And so we're going to put a temporary hold on it. So we have to stand up and do what the government is not doing for us. There's also, I think, a, um, a, a confrontation um, about rent and uh, foreclosures that will um, be developing over the course of the year. Um, I saw in the Wall Street Journal that um, on April 1st, um, uh, something like a third of Americans did not pay their rent um, on that day. I, I think some of the uh, programs that have been created for uh, to help people um, uh, delay mortgage uh, payments are unreasonable. The idea that uh, people who've been laid off or who are out of work for uh, several months will have a lump sum um, uh, of the the mortgage monies that they owe um, in the fall is ridiculous. And and so. Uh, this will have reverberating uh, effects. And so I think part of the thing is that instead of just um, on your own individually deciding not to pay uh, your rent, is that, you know, we need to uh, try to knit people together uh, to do so um, in a political way and organized around um, political demands, which is rent forgiveness, um, mortgage forgive forgiveness, debt forgiveness and that it is the government's responsibility to step into the breach that has been created uh, to cover everyone's expenses. That is what the government is for. That's what our tax dollars are for. So instead of giving the military almost a trillion dollars a year, that we repurpose that money uh, to actually pay for the financial war that is being waged on, on ordinary people. And I think that's the, the kind of attitude and disposition um, that we have to have about it and not apologize for it um, and demand that our, our state step into the into the breach, either willingly or, you know, through uh, uh, incredible political pr pressure um, and demand. That's what we have to do right now. Like the demand for not just payments to people to keep people afloat, but with saying no collection of rent, utilities, bills, because otherwise it's ultimately just a bailout for the creditors, right? That money will just go straight from people's hands up to the people they owe money to. Same thing if you provide aid to developing countries and then it just goes back to the creditors and the vulture funds, you know, whoever owns the debt. So I think we need to say, yes, money 
um, to people to keep them afloat, but also no, it's not all going to the people at the top. They need to take a haircut. Um, people need some cancellation and forgiveness so that we can get out of this. Thank you uh, to Naomi, Astra, Kianga, Dr. Dooley. Uh, before we go to our music, DSA and Haymarket surviving and coming out of this crisis stronger for the critical battles ahead. Please consider making a donation via Venmo or on the Haymarket Books website. These proceeds will be shared among the four sponsors equally. Now, finally, uh, we will end our panel with music from the wonderful musician Leah Rose, who you can find on Twitter at Leah Rose Music and leahrose.com. Please check out her music releases on Patreon and on Firebrand Records. Please welcome Leah Rose. Awesome. Thank you, Hurry. Thanks to everybody. I'm so happy to be a part of this. Um, as Dr. Julie said, it was hard. And all, all of you have been so involved in the Sanders campaign. Um, and I wanted to just say a couple words. I wrote down a few things. Um, things that really give me hope in these times. Number one is all of you. Thank you for for continuing to to fight this fight. It's been a long fight. Um, the the things that give me hope right now are the people. The people are so creative right now. Clever, resilient. Um, they never seem to quite get enough credit for all the ways we have to just keep adjusting our sales, but we just have to, and that's what we do. Um, if you find yourself giving up on humanity right now, then your your attention is on the wrong things. Uh, as so many of these amazing women have outlined, you know, you can look to the people who are organizing right now, who are offering mutual aid on the ground, who are walking out on strike. Um, who are using bold and creative new ways to protest, um, ever shifting the direct actions and um, finding ways to do it even within the constraints of social distancing. Um, the corporate elite are afraid of us. What we're doing is working. Uh, they really hate it when we get together in groups. So <laughs> keep doing that. Um, and one quick note on Bernie and not me us is... Um, why is the corporate establishment so afraid of us? Why do they hate Bernie and our movement so much that they've done all these horrific things to try to stop us? Um, a part of it is what Naomi said so eloquently. This is a long fight. The left has been attacked. It's been a war on the left forever, in the, especially in this country. Um, but uh, Bernie was never running as just a president. So from the very beginning, his plan all along was to empower an army of leaders. And you know what? We all want to just fight for someone that we don't know. <laughs> so that's what we're going to do. <laughs> um, this is a song called We Are the Ones We've Been Waiting For. If we don't do this, who will? So um, start a little loop. Yeah. Children grow. 
you pass it to them Tell them you were scared to stand up back then If not now, then when? Is it too much to ask for a life free of hate? A place to call home and a dignified wage? Who here will fight for the world we deserve? Cause we are the ones we've been waiting for We are the ones we've been waiting for If not us, then who? We'll take the bold steps that we have to When the difference will be what we do or don't do If not us, then who? Is it too much to ask for a life free of hate? A place to call home and a dignified wage? Who here will fight for the world we deserve? Cause we are the ones we've been waiting for. We are the ones we've been waiting for. If not now, then when? You're just gonna sit on the side while it happens again. After so many years of talking, my friend. If not now, then who here among us will stand up and fight organize bravely and walk out on strike we know that actions speak louder than words and we are the ones we've been waiting for we are the ones we've been waiting for we are the ones we've been waiting for Thanks, Leah. Um, we have one more really special thing. I'm very pleased to play for the first time a special video that Arundhati Roy recorded for tonight's event. The short video is from her powerful essay, The Pandemic is a Portal, which appeared in the Financial Times last week and which is the final chapter of her forthcoming Haymark's, Haymark Books title, Haymarket Books title, Azadi. What is this thing that has happened to us? It's a virus, yes. In and of itself, it holds no moral brief. But it's definitely more than a virus. Some believe it's God's way of bringing us to our senses. Others, that it's a Chinese conspiracy to take over the world. Whatever it is, coronavirus has made the mighty kneel and brought the world to a halt like nothing else could. Our minds are still racing back and forth, longing for a return to normality, trying to stitch our future to our past and refusing to acknowledge the rupture. But the rupture exists. And in the midst of this terrible despair, it offers us a chance to rethink the doomsday machine we have built for ourselves. Nothing could be worse than a return to normality. Historically, pandemics have forced humans to break with the past and imagine their world anew. This one is no different. It's a portal, a gateway between one world and the next. We can choose to walk through it, dragging the carcasses of our prejudice and hatred, our avarice, 
our data banks and dead ideas, our dead rivers and smoky skies behind us. Or we can walk through lightly with little luggage, ready to imagine another world and ready to fight for it. Thanks again to all of you who have joined. Thanks again to our co-sponsors, Haymarket Books, Debt Collective, The Leap, and DSA. We hope to see you all that are online teachings uh, with Ruth Wilson-Gilmore with Naomi Murakawa, Thursday, April 16th at 5 p.m. Eastern. Arundhati Roy with Amani Perry, Thursday, April 23rd at noon Eastern. Thanks, everybody. Apologies for my struggles with reading. I, I will work on that. Uh, it really feels good to interact with other people. Wash your hands. Good night.